welcome again and happy Easter to our church family and a special welcome to our guests, both here in the worship center and watching online with us. It's crazy to me that it's been a full year since we all had that strange experience of watching Easter service online in our homes. I peeked back at the recording of that service uh, this week and I was amazed all over again at the incredible job many of you did in helping to put that service together online, but uh, it's, it's sweet to get to gather together for Easter again, isn't it? Pray with me. Lord, you're big, and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever played this game called Mafia. You ever played the game Mafia, anybody? Yeah, most of you have. Mafia is a game where people in the room are secretly assigned to be Mafia. The rest aren't. And the whole town, so to speak, discusses together to try to figure out who the Mafia are. If the townspeople guess right, then they win. If they guess wrong, then the mafia wins. So as you can imagine, it's a game that's hard to play without lying. Right? Uh, the most convincing liar tends to win. And now, I knew that. But about 15 years ago, I found myself playing mafia with a man who was and is a mentor to me, spiritually speaking. He had taken me under his wing. I had learned from him. I had so much respect for him. And I knew that the game was all about lying. I did. Still, I knew for sure that Brian, he wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> At least not with the level of conviction that he had while he was speaking to me so sincerely. I could see it in his eyes. He's earnestly telling me he's not the mafia. He's saying, Tim, you know me. You'd be able to tell if I was lying to you. I lost that game. And I know it sounds so trivial, but for longer than I'd like to admit, I was disillusioned by that deception. I felt so dumb for trusting him, so embarrassed for publicly pleading his case to the others playing the game only to find out that he was really the mafia. In the days that followed, in all honesty, I even started questioning, well, if that wasn't real, then what is what has been real? Now, that's sort of a silly example. Brian and I laugh about that now. Um, but for some of you, the religious disillusionment that you brought here this morning, it's anything but trivial or silly. You were lied to by religious authority figures, and it wasn't part of a game. You've come to see hypocrisy and contradiction in the faith tradition in which you were raised. Maybe you were even mistreated by someone who used religion to earn your trust. So you're here today. That's no small thing. But maybe you're not here. Like you're physically present. Maybe you're carrying this morning more resistance in your heart toward religious things than maybe you have in Easter's past. That religious disillusionment is one source of what we might call doubt 
Doubt being uncertainty, suspicion, resistance that inhibits wholehearted belief. Because doubt is a universal part of the human experience, there are other reasons for doubt besides suffering a disappointing religious experience. Some doubt because they're uninformed. Some others actually seek out reasons to doubt because they don't want to be subjected to a certain standard of morality that might come with faith. Others go through an existential crisis after witnessing death or other sorts of evils. Some just make 10,000 little incremental choices until they wake up one day to realize they've departed from the beliefs they once held. If God gives me 30 Easter's as a pastor, I would love to use a handful of those to explore several of the reasons why we all doubt. Different causes of doubt seem to elicit different responses from God and Scripture. But the particular Scripture text that we're going to briefly look at this morning introduces us to a man named Thomas, whose doubt comes from that sort of acute religious disillusionment that leads a person to make this sort of pledge to him or herself. It's this sort of pledge. I can't believe I was so gullible. I'm mortified that I put myself out there for what turned out to just be a well-crafted, shiny, religious lie. Never again will I fall into that trap. I wonder if anyone here this morning or anyone watching online has ever made a similar pledge of skepticism. Would you turn with me to John chapter 20? Whether you brought a Bible or whether you use a Bible app or just want to take a look on the screen, you'll want to follow along in these verses. We're going to be in John chapter 20, starting with verse 24. While you're turning there, a little background on this scripture text that we're about to read. We open today's service with the empty tomb in John 20, earlier in the chapter. Christ the Lord, risen today. Then, as the chapter continues, the number of witnesses grows. It's Mary seeing the empty tomb, then Peter and John seeing the empty tomb, and then the risen Jesus starts appearing to people himself in the flesh. He meets Mary near the tomb, and then on Easter night, he appears to the disciples in the locked room where they're hiding. But not all the disciples are there on that Easter night. Judas is dead, and as we're about to see, Thomas actually isn't there either. Thomas, who's one of the twelve, doesn't get to see Jesus' wounds on that Easter night like the other disciples did. He doesn't get to hear Jesus speak. That's where we pick up the story, verse 24. As we follow Thomas through these eight short verses, we can summarize his journey, I think, with three words. Doubt, recognition, and destiny. Doubt, recognition, destiny. First, let's look at his doubt, verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into, into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's important that we don't overread this, but it seems clear that Thomas, he's, he's shaken up. 
by the events of Good Friday. It's possible that's why he wasn't present with the other disciples on Easter night when Jesus had appeared to them. I mean, you can imagine what this might have been like from Thomas's perspective. The one whom I thought was the promised Messiah, the one I thought was going to save us all, is instead buried in a borrowed tomb. This was all a lie. How could I have been such a fool? I got to get away. I, gotta, I just got to clear my head. Maybe that sort of mental process sounds quite familiar to you. Because maybe you've experienced religious trauma too. Six years ago, this very congregation took a punch to the gut when it came to light that a man who was supposed to be leading the flock was instead exploiting the flock. So we're not strangers here at North Sub to Thomas's disillusionment. And what do we humans do in response to that sort of deep, piercing pain? What we often do is make promises to ourselves, usually promises that contain the words, never again. We never again want to feel that pain. And so we do whatever it takes to seal off any access point where that pain might again gain entry. For Thomas, his never again goes something like this. I'm never again getting suckered into believing something that's too good to be true. He's been made a fool once, as he, the one he thought was the Messiah dies the kind of shameful death reserved only for those who are cursed. Thomas is done with it. Never again. You see his response when the other disciples tell him they've seen Jesus? He's unimpressed. Unimpressed. He says, unless I see. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He might have believed that kind of thing before. Never again. Can I ask you, what's your never again? Our never agains are how we protect ourselves from being subjected to repeated hurt. Maybe for you it's, I'll never again trust religious authority. Maybe for you it's, I'll never again be made to look like a fool by trusting a 2,000-year-old book. What's the never again that you've consciously or subconsciously pledged, the never again that has stopped you or at least made you resistant to going all in on this whole Jesus thing. For Thomas, it was that he would never again believe unless, unless he could verify it for himself beyond a shadow of a doubt with his own five senses. Right? So no, at this point in the story, Thomas's access to the risen Jesus is the same as our access to the risen Jesus today, namely, it's secondhand testimony. He's heard about the resurrection from others. He hasn't seen yet for himself, but it's about to become firsthand for him when Jesus tracks down Thomas to initiate an encounter. Before we read that encounter, what do we expect Thomas's reaction will be? What do we expect Thomas to say when he sees Jesus? and sees Jesus' wounds. Let's take a look at it. Verses 26 to 28, the recognition. Follow along with me. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, 
Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. I wonder what you would have expected Thomas to say. I might have expected something like, Jesus, you're actually alive. Or maybe even, I'm sorry I doubted you. Was he actually say, my Lord and my God? Now, that's an extreme statement, right? Like, as amazing as it must be for Thomas to see Jesus in that moment, to call a man God? On a first reading, doesn't that seem to be a little more than is warranted by the situation? Like, remember, this isn't even the first time that Thomas has seen someone come back from the dead. When Lazarus was resuscitated nine chapters back, Thomas didn't greet Lazarus by calling him God. Why say so much now upon encountering the risen Jesus? D.A. Carson makes an important observation here. Namely, I think there's a reason why John, the author of this gospel, makes a point in verse 26 to tell us that it's been eight days. Those eight days help us to put Thomas's words in perspective, I think. What comes out of his mouth upon seeing Jesus isn't just the product of the emotions of the moment, but rather... It's the product of that entire week of reflection. And I say that week because they used inclusive counting. So those eight days would have been Sunday to Sunday. So this is the next Sunday, a week after. What do you think Thomas spent that week thinking about? The week between when the other ten disciples tell him that they've seen the risen Jesus and when Jesus appears to him. You have to imagine his thoughts may have gone something like this. Can it be? No, no, there's no way. There is no way. I'm not falling for lies again. But is it, is it possible that it's true? I mean, the night before he died, he did say that crazy thing to us. When he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And there was that other time when he said, before Abraham was, I am. We only reserve that word, I am. For God, and remember when he told the dude, your sins are forgiven, and all the religious teachers barked back, only God can declare sins to be forgiven? Wait. Whatever Thomas's mental and spiritual journey was that week, by the time Jesus appears to him, he's not only ready to acknowledge Jesus' resurrection, but... He gives us maybe the strongest claim to Jesus' divinity anywhere in John's gospel. My Lord and my God. Would you be able to say that to Jesus this morning and mean it? My Lord and my God. That's different, you know, from saying some other things that we could say to him. What else would we say to him? My teacher and my guru. It's not that. Or maybe, my role model and my good luck charm. It's not that either. If he's Lord and God, that means he's master. 
It means when his wishes differ from my wishes, the wishes of whoever is Lord and God in the relationship are the wishes that went out. He calls the shots. That's what it means for him to be Lord and God. Is that who he is for you? Put it this way. If the Jesus that you believe in never disagrees with you, if he consistently accommodates himself to your agenda and never asks you to conform to his agenda, that Jesus, who, by the way, may not be the real Jesus, but rather uh, the idealized version of yourself that you've projected onto the real Jesus, your Jesus may not be your Lord and God. He may be your life coach. But if a person who made claims to divinity during his lifetime, as Jesus did, then says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it back up again. And then he does just that by coming out of his grave. That's not your life coach. That's your Lord and your God. Don't miss that little repeated word in Thomas's confession. My Lord, my God. You ever let it sink in that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead in a vacuum, but he rose from the dead for you? He wants to meet with you this morning to make sure that you know just that. He wanted to make sure Thomas knew that. He made it known to Thomas by coming to Thomas and by naming to Thomas the very doubts that Thomas had previously cited only in private. Thomas, he didn't, he didn't need to put his hand in the scars after that. Did you notice he never did? He had everything he needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had been present with him, even at his lowest point. Friend, Jesus has been with you, even as you've shared your doubts in private. He's well acquainted with your resistance, yours in particular, just like he was with Thomas's. And maybe he has given you space, just like he gave Thomas space, for your eight days, or eight months, or eight years, so that you could spend some time processing your own religious disappointment, wrestling with your questions. Maybe you haven't heard much from him during your season of questioning and doubt. Make no mistake, he has been with you all along. And now he's here in this worship center. He's there with you in your home where you're watching this and he's saying it's time. Don't disbelieve, but believe. I wonder if this might be the morning if someone cries out for the first time with Thomas, my Lord and my God. But Thomas's recognition of Jesus isn't quite the end of his story, actually. God has plans for Thomas's life. Look for Thomas's purpose, his destiny, as we read this last section of the text. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. If you spent time around churches, you probably come across verse 29 before. It's one of the most misinterpreted verses in the whole Bible. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. We often hear it explained like this. Thomas's faith is better than nothing, but it's kind of second-class faith. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lesser type of faith. It's kind of lame because he had to see to believe. Better to take a blind leap of faith. You ever heard that? Respectfully, that couldn't be more wrong. If you're someone who's a bit skeptical by nature, good news, the Bible doesn't actually call us to just be wishful thinkers. Rather, the Bible calls us to believe in rock-solid truths that actually happened at concrete moments in history, took place 2,000 years ago at the turning point of human history, attested by many eyewitnesses, and events that alter everything for you and me now, today. In fact, not only is the Bible okay with us seeking evidence before we believe, the Spirit-inspired authors of the Bible often go out of their way to offer evidence as an antidote for our faltering faith. Now, the contrast here in verse 29, it isn't between evidence-based faith on this side and wishful thinking on this side, but rather... The contrast is between that first generation of Christians, we call them the apostles, whom God made sure they got to take it all in firsthand with their five senses. And, on the other side, all of us since, who rely on their testimony to usher us into our own secondhand, but still personal encounters with the risen Christ. In other words, you and I have spiritual access to the resurrection by way of this story about Thomas and by way of other writings recorded in the Bible by the apostles. That's why John puts verses 30 and 31 after verse 29, I think. Take a look again at verses 30 and 31. I'll, I'll paraphrase. He says, Jesus did a lot of things. I wrote a few of them down. I wrote these ones down, like Thomas's journey from doubt to belief that I just shared, because so that you might believe and thereby have life in his name. Think about what those little verses teach us about what scripture is able to do, right? The underlying premise on which John's operating here is that our God is able to take the words on the pages of this book and use them to somehow produce belief in us. He's able to do a fresh supernatural work in the moment when these words are read, a moment like this morning, such that you and I can read, for example, the story of Thomas's journey from doubt to faith. And we can find God's Spirit actually acting through the reading of those words to supernaturally overcome our own doubts in a way that we can't explain. These are written so that you may believe. God uses Thomas's doubts then. He still is using them. And in doing so, I think he teaches us something about how he can use us. 
Here's what I mean. If, if even this morning, 2,000 years after the events recorded here, on the other side of the world, God is using Thomas's journey from doubt to faith as recorded in Scripture to awaken hearts, even right here, and, and, and to draw people out of unbelief, do you have any idea how he might plan to use your journey to speak to others? Like, do you have any idea of the purpose that he might have for you once he has brought you from skepticism to wholehearted faith? Historians tell us Thomas, he took the gospel eastward in the years that followed the story, possibly as far as what's now known as India. Do you know what that makes me wonder? Who's the next skeptic? that God has a plan for. It might be you. The big idea this morning is just this. Jesus wants to meet you in your doubts. Jesus wants to meet you in your doubts. Maybe you've seen your doubts reflected this morning in Thomas's doubts like a mirror. Or maybe your particular doubts happen to take a different form than those of Thomas, but no matter the source of your doubts, no matter the nature of your doubts, be certain of this. The God that raised Jesus from the dead is still facilitating encounters with the risen Christ by the power of his spirit today. And I believe that he has orchestrated someone's story to land you here this morning for that very purpose. Friend, as you've journeyed deeper into doubt in recent days and months, as you've slowly moved away from him, he has stayed right there with you. Do you know that? He knows the source of your doubts. He isn't scared off by them. He is Lord and God. And now, he wants to be your Lord and God. He wants that so badly that he left heaven to come be your stand-in, dying in your place so that once he rose from the dead and raised you to new life with him, he could be with you forever in unbroken intimacy. Why wouldn't Easter 2021 be the day you accept that invitation? He's holding out his wounded hands to you right now. Can you see him? All that's needed is to cry out with Thomas. My Lord, my God. Let's pray. Lord, you could have left us in our mess could have left us in our unbelief. When we ran away from you, when we drifted away from you, you could have just let us be indefinitely. We praise you, Lord, that you do for us what you did for Thomas. You track us down. You come find us. You speak to us those words that you only could have known if you were there with us in the secret place, in those moments of our private groanings. You know. You love us. 
pray that even this morning you'd do a work in someone's heart, drawing them to yourself, showing them how deep your love is for them, despite may, what may have happened to them along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.